Hello, I'm Kate Jabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look inside the world of defence and foreign affairs. This week, Joe Biden prepares for his first virtual meeting with world leaders. But can they relax with a new man in the White House? The tough choices facing NATO over Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a very complex country, a very problematic country in terms of trying to support it. And it has been, you know, and you look at the history of Afghanistan over really over 150 years. Putting right an historic wrong, returning the medals of military personnel forced out because of their sexuality. For some of our people, their experiences were horrendous. You know, they joined the military wanting to serve their country, discriminated against and, and asked to leave and suffered appalling treatment. And I'm, I'm desperately sorry for that. And we say goodbye to our friend Christopher Lee. The whole point of SITREP is not simply to tell people what's happening. It's to tell them what might happen, and therefore they may find that their next operation is in something that we've already told them about. Christopher Lee, our friend and colleague, and for 30 years a key voice on this programme, died at the weekend after a short illness. A little later, we'll look back at his life and career, but we'll start this week with the kind of story he would have encouraged us to get our teeth into, how changes in global leadership could affect big security questions. This week, Boris Johnson will host a virtual meeting of G7 leaders, their first in almost a year, and joining for the first time US President Joe Biden. Inevitably, coronavirus is expected to dominate proceedings. The Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab says Britain wants conflicts around the world to be halted to allow for vaccinations. Calling for two things specifically. First of all, a ceasefire to allow us to get vaccines to the most vulnerable people in those situations. And secondly, we want to, uh, through the leadership we've shown, uh, bring support for the COVAX AMC mechanism, which is providing the number and the access to the vaccines for the poorest and most vulnerable countries around the world. Well, Sir Christopher Mayer is a former UK ambassador in Washington, D.C. He joins me now. Uh, Sir Christopher, the White House is echoing Britain's desire to use this virtual G7 to coordinate efforts on the virus. It's presumably going to dominate the talks. Well, I guess... It is, because it is the subject at the moment, and it's very appealing to Boris Johnson, as well as to Joe Biden, who's trying to overturn what he sees as Trump's four years of neglect. And Boris is now in a much better moral and political position to lead a discussion on this because of the success of the British vaccine programme. So having had a good national outcome on the vaccine, he can now say, and now let's spread this good practice around the world and make it possible and implement the five-point plan. Now is the time for action. And he'll be in a very strong position to do that. And he'll find, I think, a common friend in Joe Biden and pushing for it. Yeah, indeed. But past evidence from SARS, swine flu, Zika and others is that once the immediate danger is passed, nations are reluctant to spend much on prevention. Well, that's perfectly true. One thing I would, would happily predict is that no nation will be prepared to give up its national sovereignty and control over how and where and when you do vaccines when when they are necessary. But this does not mean that you cannot have better multilateral cooperation than you had before. This is the only way in which the world learns how to tackle issues um, which are transnational and cross-frontiers. And also joining me today is Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Michael Clark, we heard Dominic Raab call for a ceasefire in Yemen and other conflict zones to allow for vaccinations. Is that a realistic ambition? No, because no other calls have, have really made any impression on the main protagonists. But it is a, 
a point to argue. So it's it's a device for saying, look, if we can get a little bit of agreement on this, if we can build some sort of international coalition around a like a truce for a vaccine truce of some sort, then maybe it will be the beginning of something we can make into a bigger initiative. Um, it might have a little bit of traction, but I don't think it will go very far. I mean, events in Yemen have gone probably too far now, and only by getting Iran and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to really step back will anything really improve in Yemen? A vaccine truce. Last week, the chief of defence staff warned the pandemic could undermine global security. Do you think rows over vaccine supplies and tougher border controls could spill over into something more serious? Well, yes, we, we are beginning to see real vaccine nationalism now. I mean, if you look at the Russian vaccine, the Sputnik V, which didn't have many backers until the, the Russians then released the data that was behind it. And once they did release the data, they've got 50 states lining up to get it and to buy it. That's actually been a quite a big win for them. But I don't give too much for the COVAX idea, which is, as Christopher said, is the, you know, the global idea. 180 nations have signed up to the COVAX initiative. Two billion doses by the end of this year is the target. They'll, they'll all sign up to that, but actually they'll do their own thing. There's a, a big scramble on uh, between the suppliers and everybody around the world, particularly in the developing world and in the emerging nations who've been ignored so far in all of this, they're really trying to get hold of any vaccine that looks as if it is even half decent. So Christopher Mayer, Joe Biden is also due to speak at a virtual event put on by the organisers of the Munich Security Conference, which last year warned of what it called Westlessness, the absence of the West as a stabilising force. Will that change, do you think, because of the new president's arrival? Well, it will certainly change rhetorically. We know this from some of the speeches and statements that Joe Biden has made. The intention is for the United States to be back and to take its rightful leadership place in the world. And I'm sure he's going to say stuff like that. And he'll say something very strong about support for NATO. But having said all that, what we don't know yet, because none of us has had an opportunity to talk all these issues through in detail with the new American administration, is what this actually means in practice. We know the US will be back. It's rejoined a number of international organizations, which Donald Trump left. For a president to go to the Munich Security Conference is in and of itself uh, an important um, symbol. But when it comes to the reality of actual politics and what you're going to do with China, what you're going to do with Russia and other threats in the world, that is not yet clear and it's going to take a while uh, to emerge. And Sir Christopher, the chair of the conference says European nations should consider what they do if four years from now, another US president in the style of Donald Trump were elected. Has it done lasting damage to faith in America as a reliable partner? Well, it's done damage and it's cast doubt. There's no, there's no doubt at all, because first of all, if you just look at Donald Trump, he, even if he as a, an individual force fades in American politics, and that's by no means certain, I think what you might want to call Trumpism is around to stay because it's part of a very, very long established strain of, of populist uh, right-wing thinking that has been in American politics in, almost since the um, Declaration of Independence. So that's not going to go away. And it is perfectly possible that come the midterm elections in 2022, that Trumpism and maybe Donald Trump himself will have a powerful effect on who gets um, elected. Now, if that happens two years out from now, I think the doubts being expressed, including by the chairman of the Munich conference, about the stability of American politics and its strategic direction will rise to the surface again. Just when you 
think it's safe to go in the water, suddenly Trump will bite your, bite your leg. I mean, that could happen politically. Sir Christopher Mayer, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time today. This is Sitrep. These should have been the final weeks of America's military involvement in Afghanistan. But once again, NATO defence ministers have been discussing whether it's really safe to leave. While the Taliban is officially in peace talks and the US has promised to leave this year, on the ground, the group is pushing closer to major cities like Kunduz and Kandahar. Leave and the West risks dooming the Afghan government to an all-out Taliban offensive. Stay and the risks to international troops could increase with the militants viewing the deal with the US as void. Well, Colonel Simon Diggins was the UK defence attaché to Kabul between 2008 and 2010. Afghanistan is a very complex country and it has been, you know, and you look at the history of Afghanistan over really over 150 years of, of foreign powers involvement for good reasons and for bad. And the point where you, you as, a, as an outsider trying to support an Afghan government is, is often the most difficult bit and the point where you withdraw is often the most dangerous. Do you think the time is right or could be right for international forces to finally leave? I think part of that is what, how the Afghan government feels. Do, do they feel strong? And I, the sense I'm getting at the moment is that they are, they are feeling very, very vulnerable. I mean, since combat operations effectively ceased in 2014, 2015, yeah, the Taliban have gradually been able to take over significantly larger parts of the country. And the reach of the Afghan government is very fragile in, in, a, num in a number of places. So they're not in a great place at the moment. But what support we need to leave behind to look after them is, is itself very problematic. But if not now, when do we simply stay forever? No, I don't. We, I don't think we do. But I think we what we, we need to do is ensure that the the package of support is is the right support. You know, it could be technical training support. It could be over the horizon support. You know, we need to keep this in game. If you look at the history of significant civil strife, and this was primarily a civil war, it has a long burn time. It goes on for a long time and it keeps going for a long time afterwards. You know, our own country in Northern Ireland, we're still basically in a post-conflict situation in Northern Ireland. And that is going to continue in uh, Afghanistan for a long period of time. And that's the headset, that's the head mindset that we need to get our heads around. The US has signed an agreement with the Taliban that they will mm. be out by the end of May. But it was conditions-based. And I think one of the key things is, is the Taliban have not kept to the conditions. I mean, the Taliban campaign of murder and intimidation continues brutally. I mean, I mean I, as you know, I have a particular interest in looking after our former Afghan interpreters. Yeah, but less than two weeks ago, you know, there was an attempt then to, there were, they murdered two interpreters uh, and a third one was foiled outside the US embassy. I mean, that's a situation. The Taliban have shown no, no real indication that they're prepared to, to, to stick by the, the terms of the ceasefire. If they did, then I think the situation might be different. But at the moment, you know, it's conditions-based, and we need to hold them to the conditions. There, there must be levers on the Taliban. And interestingly, one of the curious ones that I've been studying recently is finance. They've now got a fairly self strong self-supporting financial regime. But actually, you know, it's based on drugs, it's based on intimidation, it's based on, on blackmail. If you can attack their source of finance, you put them in a slightly weaker, weaker position. And you look at the external actors who are still continuing to support the Taliban, you know, elements of uh, it within Pakistan, uh, ele misguided elements within other parts of the Islamic world, continue to see the Taliban as some sort of, kind of glo global campaign uh, against the West. Actually, you know, it, it really isn't. 
um, and the people they're hurting are, are good Muslims. They're killing a lot more Muslims in Afghanistan than they're killing um, any, any Westerners. That was Colonel Simon Diggins speaking to James Hurst there. Professor Michael Clark is still with me. Uh, Michael, 20 years now since international forces went into Afghanistan and it's still hard to see how you get out. Yes, and I, I've lost count of the number of times we've spoken on this programme about it over all of those years. But, you know, the the, um, the strategy that was never really thought about seriously at the time, and which a uh, very senior member of the Special Forces outlined to me a little while ago, was the brown envelope strategy, which was, the, he said, what we should have done is after they kicked the Taliban out of Afghanistan in 2001 and brought the government down, put a brown envelope on the table with a dagger through it and a note saying, don't do this again or we'll be back. And the idea was that we don't really care what sort of government you have in, in Afghanistan as long as you don't allow yourselves to be a base for international terrorism. Now, that strategy of just, just going in and getting out was never really seriously considered. And if we had have done that, we'd still be beating ourselves up about it 20 years later, how cynical it was. But nevertheless, it, you know, it wouldn't have left, left us in a worse position than we are now. The better thing might have been, uh, Simon Diggins said, that the Taliban are really quite strong now, but they weren't uh, when they were kicked out in 2001. So that when the new government was reconstituted in December 2001, early 2002, with the lawyer Jürger, we should have brought the Taliban back in, in a weakened state, to say, all right, um, you are part of the political uh, arrangement, but remember where you are. And that would have been, you know, in a way, easier to deal with. Instead of which, we've run 20 years where we, we never really committed the forces needed to change the country, even if that was possible. We were then distracted, of course, within a year by Iraq. And we, by the middle of 2002, everyone's attention was moving away from Afghanistan. Um, and then we went back towards Afghanistan in 2006-7 when the situation had already deteriorated. And here we are 20 years later and we are now discussing the detail of what, in essence, we could have had 20 years ago. We're discussing the idea that, well, we don't really mind who controls Afghanistan. We don't really mind what the government does in Afghanistan as, as long as you, you don't allow yourselves to become the base for international terrorism, which threatens us. So we are intellectually... Uh, politically back where we started. Michael, stay with us. It was in 1967 that homosexuality was decriminalised in the UK, but in the 1990s, people were still being thrown out of the armed forces because of their sexuality. Although the ban on gay men and lesbian women serving in the forces was lifted in 2000, only now is the MOD beginning the process of returning medals taken from those whose military careers were brought to a premature end. Well, the Prime Minister says they suffered a very great injustice, as Paul Osborne explains. They just chucked me out with no backup, no support from anybody. Joe Orosalicha served in the Falklands, Northern Ireland and the Middle East. But in 1993, he was discharged because of his sexuality, losing his long service and good conduct medals. I had no money coming in. I lost my house in Cornwall. Um, I lost my family. Um, I was looking for, for work, left, right and centre. And basically, I was uh, pinching food from farmers' fields to survive. He was not alone. While homosexuality was decriminalised in the UK in the 1960s, it was still grounds for dismissal from the forces until 2000. Caroline Pierce is a former RAF officer. It's quite scary having to look over your shoulder all the time with that worry of being outed and thrown out. 
uh, and standing to lose everything, your job, your uh, family, your income, uh, your friends, lose absolutely everything. Around 200 people were thrown out every year. And as late as 1993, people were still being jailed for being gay in the military. People routinely received a sentence of between two weeks and six months. Craig Jones is a former Royal Navy officer who co-chairs the group Fighting with Pride. And in that process, good conduct badges were ripped from their arms and medals were taken from their chest. Um, a very sad time for, for the armed forces. Uh, but now is our opportunity. It was, says Boris Johnson, a very great injustice and one that Veterans Minister Johnny Mercer wants to put right. We are correcting a historic injustice or taking steps to start correcting it, whereby uh, LGBT plus individuals who served in the military were stripped of their medals and uh, asked to leave service and generally discriminated against in a pretty appalling way when they served in the military. For Caroline Pierce, who also now co-chairs Fighting with Pride, the lifting of the ban 21 years ago allowed her to become the first openly trans officer in the armed forces. Of course, once you're relieved of all of that stress, being allowed to stay in service at that point meant that I could focus on my job and uh, deliver 100% of me into it. And uh, that worked. And I went out to Iraq, I went out to Afghanistan, won awards for exceptional service out there. And uh, I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not been able to be myself and, uh, and live my own life. Now the medals taken from hundreds thrown out for their sexuality can be returned, but each individual must apply to the MOD to get them back. Joe Orosilicha triggered this when he took the government to court, demanding his medal be returned. Last month, it was presented to him by the Defence Secretary. They apologised to me, but that's that's not enough. Uh, I did get my medal back and I was elated over that. Uh, but nevertheless, there are thousands of other people out there who have been treated not too dissimilar to myself. Ministers say this is the start of a process of putting right an historic wrong, a promise welcomed by Craig Jones. There's also the issue of compensation. People have had lives shattered uh, by being dismissed from the armed forces. They were not able to enjoy the careers that they hoped when they joined up at 18. The criminal conviction stopped people from getting jobs in lots of areas because of vetting requirements. So actually, those folks need support with their health and their well-being and their financial circumstances. Craig Jones ending that report from Paul Osborne. Well, Michael Clark is still with me. And Michael, looking back, it seems hard to believe your sexuality could be grounds for being kicked out of the forces as late as 2000. Yes, and uh, I remember having this conversation many times with different officers. And they always used to say, well, you know, we don't mind one way or another. We don't take a view on it. But the fact is, if anything is, is prejudicial to good order in discipline, then we have to take a view of it because it may diminish the effectiveness of our forces. But actually, that was a failure for the armed forces to lead the evolution of British society. It was sort of standing behind what they took to be the attitudes. And there was a, there was a lot of natural resistance to it. When I heard some terrible things said in the 1990s that used to make me shudder, you know, there's really no excuse for it. And we ought to put all of that in a box and say, look, that's the past and the future has got to be different, particularly the sort of forces that we're now trying to evolve into being very, very high-tech, smart uh, good forces that can do a range of different things. We can't afford to exclude anybody. Finally today, we want to take the time to say goodbye to Christopher Lee, our colleague on this programme over many years, and a friend who sadly died at the weekend.
Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and this, this is SIPREP, SIPREP, your defence magazine from BFBS Radio. You're very welcome. In the next 60 minutes, Obama has spoken. Now what happens? Is the war on terrorism all done by July 2011? Or is that election speak? And, as if nothing happened, the Iraq inquiry tells us why we went to war and why we cocked up. Well, for a decade, I shared the studio with Christopher every Thursday, but his association with this programme went back much further. It was in the 1990s that he started to edit and present the programme, bringing into the studio insight and experience from a long career and impeccable connections. That informed the conversations we had on a whole range of topics, and he would often flag up the potential longer-term consequences of events. Ten years ago, in the days after the killing of Osama bin Laden, Christopher highlighted concerns about the circumstances surrounding the US raid. We shouldn't doubt that he was an evil man, etc., and the world may be better off without him. But my sense of unease was that this was an assassination. And there's something in me which says, I thought we decided at the end of the Second World War and how the Nazi war criminals, as they turned out to be, went on trial. I thought we decided that that's actually how we did things. Week by week and year by year, he helped us understand the challenges facing Britain's military. And as the UK entered the first coronavirus lockdown in March 2020 and the forces were called in to help, Christopher explained how, for many, the presence of people in uniform would be hugely reassuring. The public are not reassured at the moment of what's going on. They don't know what happens next. They don't even know what happens tomorrow. The military guys in uniform, mostly young men in uniform, they're reassuring. And the evidence that we have from past times, including the Olympics, is that the public actually likes them. As somebody was saying that if a guy, a Royal Marine corporal, leans into your motor car and says, do you mind turning left? You just turn left because he probably thinks he knows what he's talking about. Christopher Lee ran away to sea as a teenager, following in a family tradition. His father had been evacuated from Dunkirk in the Second World War. My old man, my pa, he could easily have been in the 4,000 but didn't make it back. He'd been shot up quite badly. He was on the beach. He'd been shot up quite badly. And what you've got to imagine is that in the shallow water, you've got these rowing boats, which have to row soldiers out to trawlers, etc., which then eventually row them out to destroyers to get them back to the UK. And uh, Pop sort of got into this boat, and he was bleeding over the whole of the British Army. I mean, he was so wounded. And he thought that what happened, they thought, well, this guy's not going to make it to the next stage. And he was gently tipped over the side and back into the water. And there he was flapping around in the water as best he could when this boat took a direct hit all gone. And he was picked up by somebody else who, because there is in the water, they didn't realise how badly wounded he was. Put him in another boat, he got back to the UK and the Navy saved his life on the way back in a destroyer. I said to him, uh, that was hard luck, wasn't it? And he said, no, but you start feeling the guilt thing. Why shouldn't I have been in the boat? His military career included time as a commander in the Royal Naval Reserve and as captain of HMS Wildfire based at Chatham. He also worked as a defence correspondent for the BBC, as well as writing plays, biographies and a hugely successful history of Britain for Radio 4. And he brought all of that experience with him when he came into our studio every week. 
Christopher brought others in with him too, including naval historian and security analyst Professor Eric Grove. He became really my sort of media patron. He got me involved with BFBS, uh, with SITREP. He was always rather provocative, and that was good. He, he made one think, and he would always add something if you said something in an interview or something. An extremely good popularizer of history, but also was an extremely good writer for radio. And of course, he wrote for the Archers. I mean, he was extremely versatile. I owe him a great deal, and I'm very, very sad to, to see him go. Another regular guest in the SITREP studio was Major General Julian Thompson, who commanded British forces during the Falklands War. He used to run the studio in a most wonderful way. I always think of him as rather like a squash player sitting in the middle of a squash ball. And the balls were verbal missiles coming at him and he would bounce them back. And he'd occasionally say, zoo radio now, chaps, which meant everyone was a free-for-all, which of course he really controlled terribly well. He had a wonderful sense of humour, and he was, I say, very knowledgeable about defence. He knew more about defence than most other people. It wasn't just in the studio that Christopher's experience came to the fore, but behind the scenes as well. Josella Waldron was SITREP's editor between 2011 and 2020. He made me work harder, I have to say that because he made me think differently. He would come in and say, why aren't we doing this? But they were always really good stories, things that hadn't really made the news. He was telling me that, yes, people are going to get in boats and they're going to go across the Mediterranean from Africa. I said, what? It was two years before that started making the news. He was always great fun and would chip in with some silliness and join in with all the, the randomness that happens in radio. And he never stopped joining the dots between issues that often seem to have little to do with each other. One of the problems of NATO, one of the problems of British defence, is that there are no big ideas. And frankly, the big idea should be now to be able to link the military debate with climate change because it's very much part of what you do with climate change. How do you live with climate change? Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with me. Um, Michael, you shared a studio with Christopher on many occasions, didn't you? Yes, I did. I have to say this is a very sad uh, item. He, he, was a, he was a very generous spirit, Christopher, and he was a very good friend. And he knew radio inside out. He knew broadcasting inside out. And the thing I remember most, I think, is he used to affect a sort of a, a fluffy English eccentric exterior. And in a typical English way, he had this fluffy exterior, but there was a core of intellectual steel there. And that's why he could always, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he wanted out of an interview. And so you'd think that you were just having fun with Christopher, which you were, but he would drive something with this this subtle steel to get to the point that he wanted it to be, the conversation that he wanted, the point that he wanted to make. He was a, he was a true professional that made it look easy. And one thing a lot of people have talked about is the breadth of his work, writing books and plays, episodes of The Archers, and also keeping up with every development in defence. Yes, yeah. Oh, he, I mean, the, the first thing I read of his before I'd even met him was his book on space uh, warfare, Star Wars stuff. I remember him telling me once that whenever he went to speak about defence or politics or even history, as soon as somebody introduced him and mentioned the fact that he used to write for the Archers, that's all anybody wanted to know about, the Archers. And it was it was a bit like an earlier version of appearing on Strictly Come Dancing. You know, it, it sort of obsesses people. But he had this fabulous uh, breadth 
to what he did. So the 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 Scepted Isle, that with the the history series, which absolutely riveting. I loved it when it was on, and so he had this tremendous depth. You know, history, defense policy. He wrote more than a hundred radio plays. Uh, many of which were they, they were sort of um, irreverent about the establishment. They were they were cheeky, and he had he had that ability and that courage, just to as it were have a go at everything. And it was tremendous. He was a sort of Renaissance man in broadcasting. Yeah, he, he, it's funny you talk about cheekiness. I mean, I, he used to slip things into conversation every now and then to me and say, oh, "I'm just doing this," or "I'm just playing a cello with a quartet somewhere in London later." And I was like, "What? You play the cello?" I was thinking, and I, at times I used to pinch myself: Is this man just telling me stories, or is he actually doing all these things? And then I realised he is, and he has. Yes, there is. Um, I think broadcasting has lost a great figure, and um, you know we have all lost a, a fellow professional and a real friend. It's very sad. Professor Michael Clark, thank you for your time today. Well, over those 10 years, when he sat alongside me in the SITREP studio, Christopher would challenge, dissect and find the other side to the stories we covered. Sometimes combative, always demanding, but gloriously so. And when on occasion I would ask, what do you mean? He would reply, I don't know. I didn't listen. So now finally, over to you, our friend. You have the last word. We are listening. The whole point of SITREP is not simply to tell people what's happening. It's to tell them what might happen, and therefore they may find that their next operation is in something that we've already told them about. You have to start every item in every programme and say to yourself, why would a soldier, a sailor, an airman, airwoman want to listen to this? And that is the guiding light. You search the airwaves throughout the world, you will not find a single programme that is devoted to the military and military things that runs for half an hour and is so widely respected. Now that's it for this week. Join us here on next week, SITREP, Thursday, 4 o'clock UK time. If you can, listen again and podcast anytime you like at bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. But for me now, Christopher Lee, I'm going bye-bye. And guess what? Mary's in the hut. <laughs> In a brand new original BFBS podcast. Tonight, the battle has been joined. Decision makers. The Gulf War was very much the first televised war. Military commanders. There we were witnessing that. And ordinary soldiers, sailors and airmen. At night, you could hear the firing from the American Navy using their cruise missiles and the battleship shelling the Iraqi forces ashore. Hear the story of the 1991 Gulf War. The conditions of being in the desert were a huge impact. When you're trying to maintain infection control, it's really, really challenging. Told by those who were there. Well, I found it most terrifying when we lost a jet from Bahrain. And you're sitting there thinking, I might not come back. Granby, the storm in the desert, wherever you get your podcasts and at bfbs.com slash podcasts.